Be seated, please. Amen. Good morning again, church. I am, uh, again, just grateful for your presence this morning. I hope you've had a great week. Again, if you're a guest, we want to extend a special welcome to you today. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It'll be important that you find 1 Samuel some way or another uh, on your phone or in your actual Bible. Or if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the pew in front of you. On that Bible, it's in page 278. Um, and we're going to be reading from there in just a minute. I want to I mention before we start to encourage you to be sure you're here next Sunday. Mark your calendars for next Sunday. It's a special day in the year kind of as for our church as uh, our kids do their annual children's Christmas program and tell the story of Jesus. And uh, I want you to, to be here to, to support that, to hear that story told and uh, to encourage those kids as they as we walk with them, as they learn and uh, come to appreciate in new ways each year that story. Uh, this morning, <clears throat> we continue our, in our Advent series that we're calling Jesus the True and Better. And as we've mentioned a couple times already this morning, Advent simply means coming or arrival. It could be the coming or arrival of anything. Uh, but for Christians during this season, we think about it as the coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And to help us uh, in our thinking about Christ's arrival on earth, uh, we've chosen four different Old Testament people that we're looking at over this month-long build-up to, uh, to Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. And we're reflecting with each of these people on how they are, how Jesus is the true and better version of that person. Uh, so in week one, we started with Adam, how Jesus is the true and ba- better Adam. Jesus passed the test in his garden that Adam did not pass. And because of Jesus' passing of that test, his obedience is ascribed to us, and that's good news. Uh, and we looked last week at Abraham and talked about how Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Abraham answered God's call, left his home and his place that he was familiar with, and went to a place that he did not know. And like Abraham, Jesus also left the comfortable and familiar confines of heaven and came to earth to create a new people of God, even though in Abraham's lifetime, uh, he wouldn't see his faith become sight. We, we sing still about, our, we've seen Jesus come, right? And we know that there's still a hope that we have that he's going to return because he said he would. And so I tell you that partly because I want to tell you what's going to happen in two weeks. In two weeks, on December the 23rd, uh, I'm excited about the sermon that I'm going to preach that day. It's, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the true and better Esther. And I want to tell you that now because if it's been a while since you've read the story of Esther or you've thought about the story of Esther, I want to encourage you over the next two weeks. Next week, we'll have a traditional sermon. The kids are preaching the sermon next Sunday. Um, but in two weeks, we're going, to, we're going to talk about Esther. And it's too big a story for me to talk about in one sermon. And so it would be helpful uh, I think you would be, you know, benefit for in the sermon hearing what I had to say about Esther and how Jesus is the better version of her uh, if you'll re, re, kind of refamiliarize yourself with that story over the next couple of weeks. So that might be something that you want to do. Today, though, we're going to talk about David, and we're going to turn our attention to, uh, to, to David, one of the most familiar people in the Bible, really outside of Jesus. And so before we look at David, I want to I ask if you would just to pray with me this morning. Father, this morning we come and again we just uh, proclaim it is well with our soul that we, we long for the day that you'll return. And while we are here on earth, we pray you'll help us to be about the task of 
bringing your kingdom to bear on this planet. Father, we ask that you'll give us courage and wisdom and vision to know how that plays out and how it's supposed to be. You'll give us the ability to discern and to know the steps that we might take to be your people in this place. I'm so grateful this morning for this church and for those of us that are gathered here this morning. I don't believe it's by accident that any of us are here, and I pray that you'll prepare our hearts to hear what you want us to hear and to see what you want us to see in these stories, in these words that we are going to study so that we will be able to be more effective at living our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. We trust that you'll accomplish this, and we pray that uh, that you'll help it to be so. We pray in the name of Christ, and the church said, amen. So we first meet David in in 1 Samuel 16. Saul, in 1 Samuel 16, Saul was king of Israel, but God has rejected Saul as king. So God tells the prophet Samuel, who the book of 1 and 2 Samuel are named after, God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem, Because the king that God has actually chosen, since he's rejected Saul, will be there in Bethlehem. The son of a man named Jesse is who Samuel is supposed to go and find. And this is what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16 about the trip to find this king. In verse 7, he said, Do not consider his appearance or his height, Samuel. People look at the outward appearance. But God, but the Lord, looks at the heart. God said this because at this point in the story in chapter 16, each of Jesse's sons are passing by in front of Samuel. And Samuel thinks to himself and says to God, Surely this son of Jesse is the king. He's tall, he's strong, he looks like a king. But one by one, God says, Nope, not that one. And finally, the youngest son, David, is called in from tending the sheep. It's almost in the story like they had kind of forgotten that David was even really a son. It's like an afterthought. And there in front of his older brothers, David is anointed the king of Israel by Samuel. And this is what 1 Samuel 16, 13 says about that moment. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. This is the beginning of David's story. But this morning, we're not going to just stay there. There's a lot of places we could look. We're going to look at really the most familiar story about David. And that happens in the very next chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. That's right. So we're going to read beginning in uh, verse verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. And I'm going to skip around to try to catch as much of this story as possible, but uh, it's, a, it's a really, chapter 17 is a really long chapter, so we're not going to read all of it. We're going to kind of skip around a little bit. So, so hang with me here as we read. We're going to begin in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes uh, Demim between Soko and Azekah, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So you kind of get the scene of this of this battle. Now a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was 
six cubits and a span. If you have footnotes in your Bible or some of your Bibles may even say it was about nine feet, nine inches tall. So this guy is almost 10 foot tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, about 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His his shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will be your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So this happens, we're going to pause there for just a second. This happens for 40 days. This goes on. And, and meanwhile, while this scene is playing out and Goliath is coming out and challenging the armies of Israel, David is off in Bethlehem. And Jesse, David's father, starts wondering about his older sons. You know, what, how are they doing? How's the battle going? So he sends David to check on his brothers. And we're going to pick up beginning in verse 20 as he's arriving to to check on his brothers. Verse 20 says, Early in the morning David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines and facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was walking with, talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, Goliath, they all fled from De- Goliath in great fear. So David, David, we get the sense as we hear this part of the story that he is not afraid of Goliath, right? As we're going to see in just a minute, he's going to talk about, we're not going to read all of it, but as the story kind of keeps going, David will say, like, who is this guy? Why is he talking about God's people like this? And then he goes on to say, like, I'll fight him. I'm not afraid to fight him. I've killed lions and bears as a shepherd tending the sheep. And so we're going to pick up this story in verse 45. David is now prepared. They've all agreed, as crazy as it might sound, to let this teenage boy go out and fight this 10-foot giant. They've all agreed to this scenario playing out in front of them, that, that their fate about whether they'll be servants of Philistines, the you know, Philistine servants or their own people, rests in the hands of this shepherd, teenage shepherd boy. And so verse 45, kind of the climax of the story, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. 
As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took a hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from, his, from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. What a great children's Bible story. <clears throat> right? Th- this story has so much happening in it. And we're familiar with this story. As I said, I think David, this is the story that sort of begins to exalt David as the, as the, the great king that he was. But the most important thing, I think, about this story, and this is what I want, I want you to catch as we hear that story read, is that because of this event, I mean, it's the beginning of really David's you know, story in these first couple chapters of 1 Samuel. From this moment on, and because really of this singular event of David's slaughtering of Goliath and freeing the Israelites from Philistine oppression, David's reputation grows, right? He, he, he later, be, you know, he becomes the king, and he becomes the sort of the visible example for Israel and other nations of what a king is supposed to look like. And his kingdom grew. I mean, as David is king, one, one thing you may or may not know about, about Israel at this point in history is that, I mean, they are, you've got to remember their story is they have always been on bottom, right? Just earlier in the Bible, they have been, Israel, they have been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. So lots of people, Israelites, lived and died, and their kids lived and died, and their grandkids lived and died, always under Egyptian oppression. And so they say, how we get to this point in the story, we want a king like everybody else. And God says, no, I'm your king. But God gives in, and he allows Saul to become their king, but then he rejects Saul. And so the the Israelites are kind of wondering, like, what's going to happen next? And then David steps on the scene. And he slaughters Goliath, and this moment begins to build and establish the kingdom for Israel. They are no longer, for a period of about 40 years, on bottom. They, they are no longer ruled by other nations. The kingdom is unified for the first time in history. They're on top. They're in charge. And maybe more importantly, what, what is kind of what's thought about David's rule, reign and rule as king is that it brought about peace. It brought about security, really because they were always kind of on the attack of all the neighboring nations. And when you're on top as kind of the world superpower at the time, as they were, you feel a sense of security and comfort. I mean, David's king and re- kingdom and his reign as king, again, which started with this moment, brought about a time in history that Israel had never known and has basically never known since. So just kind of let that sink in for a minute. So this story took on a life of its own with Israel. I mean, just imagine if your king did this to a 10-foot tall dude that was defying the, the army that you're a part of, right? And so, but not only did this story take on a life of its own with Israel, this story, as we all are aware, has taken on a life of its own in our culture. Sports, in particular, love the story of David and Goliath. Sports commentators and radio talk show hosts love this story. The small school, David, right, defeats the big school, Goliath. The reigning champion, Goliath, 
is defeated by the team that no one thought had a fighting chance, David. The underdog knocks out the juggernaut. Everyone loves an underdog story. But there's also another way. That's one way that sort of this story is used in, you know, as we think about it. But there's another way that I think that we typically apply this story. And that is that we are David. Now hear me out for just a second. When we think about the story this way, which I think is probably the dominant way that most people think about this story, that we are David and that you know, we're able to defeat our own giants as they call out to us, issuing their, their challenges. But the reality is, and I want to I be as clear as I can this morning, that we are not David in this story. I think that's the wrong way to interpret this story, actually. This story is not about us. This story is about Jesus. And as we think about the significance of this story, if, if we are anyone in the story, we fill the role of the people in verse 11, where it says, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified by the giant. If we fill the role of anybody in this story, we are the people in verse 24 about whom the, the text says, they run and hide in fear when they see the giant. So you might be asking yourself this morning, is Doug saying that I cannot defeat my giants? Am I saying that you can't defeat your giants? And I want to be crystal clear, I am saying absolutely that is true. You cannot defeat your giants. But Jesus can. And Jesus has defeated them. Now, this might diminish the story for you. I might have just burst your bubble. But it, I actually think it should enhance the story for us. Because what, it, what, what I'm saying is that Jesus did for us something that we were unable to do on our own. The Israelites could not defeat this giant. And out from Bethlehem comes a shepherd boy that no one thinks would, I mean, really, think, you really think, would you pick a teenage shepherd boy to fight, if your life depended on it, to fight a 10-foot-tall giant? No, you wouldn't do that. Jesus did something that we were unable to do. And I want you just to think for a second, if you're not completely sold in, you know, bought into this idea that we are not David in this story, that Jesus is David. I want you to think about the ways that Jesus is the true and better version of David and how their lives often parallel one another. Their beginnings, just to start, were very similar. David was a shepherd boy that came from humble beginnings to become king, a shepherd boy that came from Bethlehem. And the true and better David also came from humble beginnings, born in Bethlehem. And then later, living in Nazareth, about whom the new, some one person asks at one point in the New Testament, what good can come from Nazareth? Which tells you Nazareth didn't have the reputation that you might think a king would come from. Jesus, the son of a carpenter. Jesus did not look like the king people were imagining. Another comparison, I think, about the way we see Jesus as the true and better version of David. Israel's primary fear, as we think about this story, was being conquered and being ruled by another enemy, a terrible enemy. But the true and better David conquered the worst enemy, death. 
And as a result, you and I are no longer a slave to fear. The first David went into battle with weapons, a sling and some stones that did not look like they would bring about victory over a giant, but did. And the true and better David also fought the greatest giants, giants like sin and death and shame and hate and revenge and violence with the strangest of weapons, a cross, self-sacrificing love. This is why Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, reflecting on what Jesus did, says this. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The first David went into battle while all of those that deemed themselves strong stood on the sidelines in fear. And the true and better David also went into the battle alone and conquered the giant by himself while we stood on the sidelines shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Not sure what we would do. I want you to listen to the way that Tim Keller talks about this idea. This is what he says. He says, Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 32, which we didn't read, I don't think, David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant, David, will go and fight for him. And Jesus, in the New Testament, says to us, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Church, we have been given victory in Christ through nothing that we did on our own to accomplish it. But the thing I don't want you to hear is me saying that, that I think the thing we've got right as we think about who we are and where Christ is in this story of David and Goliath, I think we have the giant role figured out pretty well. I just think we have our role and Jesus' role confused because it, if we're David, then that means we're, we're able to accomplish this thing on our own, and we are not able to accomplish it without the help of Jesus Christ. In our day, giants don't look like a nine-foot, nine-inch man named Goliath. Our giants look like death. Our giants look like sin. Our giants look like anxiety and depression and grief. Our, our giants look like pain and loss. Our giants look like doubts. Our giants look like questions about our future. What will I do with my life or my career? Our giants look like challenges in our families. Our giants look like challenges in our marriage. Our giants look like challenges with our kids. And church, if, if Jesus has taken out the real giant in our life. What it means for us is, the good news for us is that we can bravely face all of the lesser giants knowing that we are armed with this knowledge. They have already lost. In Christ, you and I do not have to be afraid of death. In Christ, we don't have to be afraid of the future flying out of control. In Christ, you don't have to be afraid of the fear of, of dis the disapproval of other people. You can be honest in Christ about your faults and your weaknesses and admit that you don't have it all together. 
And as important as it is that, that we think about this this morning, there's one other piece of this story that I want to be sure to talk about. That one application is certainly that we need to grasp that Jesus is da- the true and better David, able to defeat the giants that we on our own were not able to defeat. So kind of put that application here for a second. And really it's not a different application, but it's another way of thinking about the same topic. Because as important as it is that we know that Jesus is king, it's also important that we know that as king, we have to see that Jesus defeated the enemy in a different way than David defeated his enemies. The earliest Jews actually missed this. They missed it. That's why they crucified Jesus. And I want to read just one story. Uh, There's a number of places we could look. I want to read in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. This story is known as the triumphal entry, the uh, often referred to as kind of Palm Sunday, right, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and people stand waving on the sides in their palm branches shouting, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna in the highest. But Luke tells the story in a little different way, and I I love the way that he tells it, partly because of the language that he uses. And I want you to see if you can kind of observe this, this story and see maybe if the same things jump out to you. In verse 28, Luke says, After Jesus had said this, he went on up ahead going to Jerusalem. And he, as he appeared at Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they're untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As Jesus went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When Jesus came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And this is what they said. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And this, is, this, is, this happens, right? This is the way that it happens. Jesus comes into the city. They wave branches. Things are looking good. Jesus has come as king. Luke is the only gospel writer that uses the word king. Others talk about them shouting, Son of David, Hosanna in the highest, right? But right after this story, do you notice what happens next? Listen, I have it up on a slide if you want to just look up there. This is what happens, the very next thing. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle Jerusalem and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is why this is so important. Hoping that the miracle-working prophet from Galilee would turn out to be the long-awaited Messiah, 
who would liberate Israel from Roman occupation. The Passover Christians, as they're, they're, that's what they're gathering to do, is celebrate the Passover from the Old Testament. And they ecstatically shout, Hosanna, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But while they are celebrating, Jesus is weeping. So the question that we ask is why? What is going on there? And I would suggest that what's going on is that they could not understand how Jesus was going to be king. The Jews were still, I mean, Jesus is about to die, and they are still looking back on that point in history and remembering what I think that Israelites think of as the golden years, which, which is David's reign and rule as king. David's reign and rule as king was 40 years. So Israel is still a long time after David, longing for the golden years to return. They longed for those days when David reigned and ruled to be again so that they could be on top. And what they were anticipating was that Jesus was about to do again what David had done. But Jesus did not conquer the way that people expected Rather than slaughter his enemies, Jesus took the weight of sin, 1 Peter said a minute ago, into himself and ended that cycle. He ended death as the great and final enemy. Everyone believed that if you were going to be the Messiah and you were going to rescue Israel, that you would need to behave like Joshua that conquered the land of Canaan, that led Israel into the land of Canaan, or like David, the giant slayer and kingdom builder. These Jewish war heroes, like Joshua and David, provided very much sort of the the prototype, the, the example of what a Messiah, a Savior, should look like. But can we see that what Jesus kept doing was talking about forgiveness and loving enemies and turning the other cheek? Jesus prophesies in this story in Luke 19 that within a generation, Israel will be destroyed, which actually happened. They wanted a war-waging Messiah, but Jesus was not the second coming of any Jewish military hero. Jesus was the first coming of the Prince of Peace. And what they wanted was physical security from their enemies, a time of peace, and what they needed was spiritual security that David could not provide as king. This is why Jesus weeps over the city, because he realizes that his vision for the kingdom of God has not been received. They couldn't see it. And the question for us is, can we? Are we able to see our Messiah that isn't interested in putting us on top, but wants us to get, wants to get down in the mess with us and wants to do the same with, with the other people, with, with each other? This is, I think, what bothered people about Jesus so much. He hung out, if you think about Jesus as king, he hung out with people that royalty did not associate with. He said things that kings don't say, like whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. No king was going to serve anybody. He touched lepers that no one else would have dared touch, especially a king. He taught the love of enemy would be the high, one of the highest values in his kingdom. The healing of the nations came through the sacrifice of his own body, not the death of other people. Jesus is the true and better David because he gives us a whole new picture of what it means to be a king. 
can we see that the first advent, Christ's first arrival on earth, that one of the most important things it did was turn the idea of kingship upside down. That David built his kingdoms with battles and bloodshed and armies, and Jesus came preaching a different message, a kingdom that would advance through grace and truth, where enemies would no longer be slain but loved, where forgiveness would be the way forward. Our king has truly defeated the worst enemy, sin and death. And our king has modeled moving forward for us and the world the best way, the best example of what it means to reign and rule over a kingdom. And they were so certain that their king was going to be like David that when Jesus showed up, they didn't recognize that he was the better way. And what I love about that passage in 1 Samuel 16, as Samuel is going to find this king, the son of Jesse, in the town of Bethlehem, that what God said to Samuel on that day really does come true in Christ. Man is, going to look, is always going to look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Can we see this morning that our king came in a way that no king has ever came, come. He, he, he rules in a way that no king has ever ruled. May we see Jesus in the way that the Jews missed. With him on the throne, your, it's true that your giants will never have the last word over you because Jesus has defeated them, not with a stone and a sling, but with a cross. And with Jesus on the throne, the way of peace looks different. This beautiful king, the true and better David, is reigning now. He is on the throne if we have eyes to see him. Christ has come, and Christ is coming back. And when Christ returns, all that is still wrong with the world will be made right. And it is for this day that we long and that we hope and that we wait in expectation. Let's pray together. God, we come this morning grateful <clears throat> that Jesus has modeled for us a way forward. We're grateful that Jesus has defeated our enemies and our giants in life. And I pray this morning, God, that what we'll hear is, is not uh, a word of discouragement, that we won't be disheartened as we replace Jesus in the role of David and we put ourselves really in the, the more appropriate role. That we are prone to fear and anxiety and questioning and doubt. And into that, Jesus steps and says, I've got this. I'm going to defy, I'm going to defeat this enemy that we have been unable to defeat on our own. May we stand in confidence today knowing that Jesus has defeated death and sin and that the other giants that loom over us who cast their large shadow over our lives, may we be comforted today in knowing that Christ reigns and rules over the world and that those giants have lost, they have no power over us today. And we praise your name for that and say glory to God in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. God, we trust that you're coming back and we long for that day. And we pray that while we're still here on earth, that you'll give us the courage and conviction and vision to live as your people in this place, bringing your kingdom to bear in every way possible. We pray through the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, Amen. This morning, we want to provide a time, as we do each Sunday, for response. And maybe that you want to respond publicly, and if so, I'll be down here.
But it also may be that you want to find somebody around you and ask them to pray with you. Maybe a giant in your life is looming over you. And what you need most this morning is to be reminded that Christ has already won the battle. However you need to respond, we want to encourage you to do that. There'll be an elder in the back and I'll be here. Find each other. Let's comfort each other with this truth this morning that Christ is the true and better David. Let's do that while we stand and while we sing.